Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. For the last few weeks, we've been focusing in on Detective Matt Hardy's investigation into the double homicide of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. I think that it's important at this stage to remind ourselves that we are approaching this investigation with new eyes, starting at the beginning. There are two phases to any criminal investigation. The first being an evidence-driven investigation. During the evidence-driven phase, our goal is to gather information and develop theories as to how the crime happened. How were the murders carried out? What is the crime scene telling us in terms of potential motive? When did the attacks occur? What is our window of opportunity for the offender? And who might be ruled out with a valid alibi? In the first segment of today's episode, I'm going to be reviewing the handwritten notes taken by Detective Hardy during his investigation. Throughout my review of his notes, it occurred to me why his investigation is so incomplete, leaving us with a lot of unanswered questions see, the second phase of any criminal investigation is referred to as a suspect-driven investigation. The shift from evidence-based to suspect-based should never occur until a full evidence investigation is complete, meaning you should have a full picture of what happened, how, and when before you focus in on a single suspect. During the suspect-driven phase, an investigator is quite literally investigating a particular suspect rather than investigating the crime itself. What Hardy's notes and his reports clearly indicate is that he was in suspect-driven mode from day one of this investigation. What we see in all of his documentation is that he is investigating Deborah Perringer from the very beginning. The reason that this type of early shift is so dangerous and often leads to wrongful convictions is because the detective's focus is so narrowed so early that other avenues of investigation and other leads are ignored. In this particular case, Hardy has his sights set on Deborah. Now, he may have ended up being right. We just simply don't know yet. But what we have already learned is that two very promising leads were all but ignored in the early stages of the investigation. The man in the backyard and the man who matched his description being pulled over in the neighborhood on the day before the murders. Had Hardy still been gathering evidence, rather than investigating Deborah, the outcome of this case may very well have been very different. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. 
But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. In this first segment, and this won't take very long, I'm going to break down the new information that I was able to find in the detective's handwritten notes. The notes are all posted on our website. There are five files. It's not really clear whose notes are whose other than the file number five, which absolutely are Detective Hardy's notes that were used to transfer into his offense report. The first thing that caught my attention is found on page 13 of note number two. These appear to be Detective Betcher's notes. On this page, one thing seems to be cleared up, and another gets more confusing. First, the good news. Betcher is documenting his walk through the crime scene, and the note reads, quote, Down hall to bedroom, blood behind door, some blood on mirror outside of door. End quote. So, I think we can put one conspiracy to rest. Dr. Ambers had pointed out to us that the blood on the mirror that later came back as a match to Deborah Perringer is not visible on the mirror in the crime scene video. And she's not wrong. You cannot see the blood in the video. Several listeners have examined it looking for the blood, and one listener even went through the trouble of screenshotting the video and using her photo editing skills to try to adjust lighting and contrast to see the blood. Even after all that work, we still never get a look at the blood stain in the video. Now, I've been hesitant to call this out as some kind of evidence planning, even though I have to admit I also do not see the blood in the video. While I do not believe that the detectives in this case are incapable of cheating the evidence in their favor, faking a photo of blood on a mirror on the night of the investigation seems very unlikely to me. And now, given the fact that this detective notes in his handwritten notes that he saw the blood, I'm very comfortable saying that the blood was most likely, in fact, there. Betcher arrived on the scene and began his walkthrough at 8.10 p.m., so about three hours after police arrived on scene and a couple hours before the video was shot. But, unfortunately, seconds after breathing a sigh of relief about the blood on the mirror, I found myself banging my head against the desk two sentences later. Betcher writes, quote, Bed in bedroom, large amount of blood on bed. Victim laying on floor on back. End quote. After spending weeks considering what the lividity evidence is telling us about the time of death based on the fact that Agnes's body was face down from the time of her death until well after midnight, Betcher says that her body was on her back when he arrived. Now, I'm going to say that I believe he's just wrong in this statement. But it has to be noted that his notes do contradict all the other evidence. For example, we know that Agnes was face down at midnight. We see that in the crime scene video. Before anyone asks, no, the EMTs would not have moved her body into that position. The only time first responders will roll a body over in this situation would be onto their back in order to put leads on their chest for an EKG. They would never roll a dead body from their back to a prone position. 
Hardy notes that nothing, including the bodies, was moved on the scene until after the video and crime scene photos were shot, which again was after midnight. Gas testified to the same effect. Nothing was disturbed. And then we have the first arriving officer's testimony. Officer Galusha was the first person to enter the scene. He was the one who discovered Agnes's body. From the transcript, quote, In the last room, bedroom on my right, after checking all the other rooms, I observed a white female lying face down on the floor with her head by the bed in a pool of blood. End quote. Which is precisely the position we see Agnes in six and a half hours later in the video. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out Betcher's discrepancy, although considering it contradicts literally all of the other testimonial and physical evidence, I'm chalking it up to a mistake. Moving on, on page 28 of the same set of notes, Betcher writes, quote, Betcher noticed black and blue bruises on forearms. Said she fell downstairs. Couldn't photograph these because they wouldn't show up. End quote. I found this entry very interesting. Of course, we already knew that Betcher claims to have seen the bruises on Deb's arms and that he claimed that they wouldn't show up in pictures. But what caught my eye was the fact that he describes the bruises as black and blue. Now, I've made my opinion pretty clear on the bruise situation already. To be very blunt, I don't believe Deb's arms were bruised that day. That's just an opinion, so take it with a grain of salt. But my feeling is that even if the bruises were faint and they had their camera out, and they were taking pictures of little cuts on her finger, I just do not believe that if they saw those bruises, that they wouldn't take any photos. Some listeners have theorized that the bruises must have been faint, and maybe the detectives were concerned about creating bad evidence if they didn't show up in the pictures, which is another issue with a suspect-driven investigation this early. They're worried about building a case against Deb instead of making sure to collect and document all of the evidence. But Betcher here describes the bruises as black and blue, which hardly indicates that the bruises were faint or hard to see. Next up, we need to talk about the trash can lid. To refresh your memory, the trash can in the laundry room was dumped out all over the floor. During Patrick Gass's testimony, he stated that he and multiple other investigators inspected the lid of the trash can, and they all determined that there was nothing of evidentiary value on the lid so it wasn't collected. Jump ahead then to April of 2002. DNA testing reveals that Deb's blood was discovered on the dining room table and on a drawer face in the kitchen, and she's arrested on April 19th. Four months later, 12 additional items were sent in for testing, and Deb's blood was found on four of those items, all but securing the state's case against Deborah. One of those items was the trash can lid the lid that investigators unanimously decided had no evidentiary value whatsoever on the night of the murders. As I've stated before, this was a white plastic lid. And what was ultimately found on the lid was a pretty large smear of blood. But here's the rub with the trash can lid. Hardy never mentions in his report why the lid was later sent for testing. But the reason is explained in the handwritten notes. A lot of people, including Patrick Gass on the Oxygen show Snapped, have made a pretty big deal of the fact that Deborah retained an attorney early into the investigation. But what's never mentioned is the fact that she wasn't the only one. Deb's sister Brenda also hired an attorney. She retained Martin Kahn, an estate attorney, I'm told within a day or two of the murders in order to ensure that the will in the estate was properly distributed. 
And we have a notation in the handwritten notes that says that eight and a half months after the murders and over three months after Deb's arrest on July 23rd, Brenda called the police station about the lid. The report reads, quote, Brenda Stuckert called Officer Greg Miller. Brenda was told by Martin and Molly Kahn that they found possible blood on the floor of the study and did not know if CSU had found some blood, end quote. Then, in the next entry, it states, quote, Mrs. Kahn contacted detective, stated that they found some spatter on the floor in the southeast bedroom, which was the office, and also found what she believed to be blood on the lid to the garbage can, end quote. An officer ball went out to the scene and met with Molly Kahn and determined that the stain on the office floor was just residue from luminol testing. Then Mrs. Kahn handed over the trash can lid that now has a large blood smear on it. Ball collected it, and it was later sent out for DNA testing. Just some food for thought. Of the items sent for testing after Deb's arrest, one was the caller ID box with the cut cord that was previously determined to have no evidentiary value. And another was the trash can lid that was also determined not to have any evidentiary value, but then later was found to have blood on it by a private citizen eight and a half months after the murders. A private citizen that happened to be hired by the woman who stood to gain an additional $225,000 if Deb was convicted of the murders. As we move on, we find that, according to the notes, Deb's cell phone records and her bank account information was, in fact, requested, although we don't have any records of either in the case file. We only have her husband Paul's work phone records, or so it seems when we reverse search the phone numbers listed for the records. And then we have what I found to be an interesting entry regarding the polygraph tests. In last week's follow-up episode, a listener noted that during Brenda's polygraph, she was never asked if she knew who killed her parents. She was only asked if she herself was present or did the killing. But on page 15 of file number 5, we have an entry containing notes from a conversation that Hardy had with polygrapher Eric Holden. In this entry, Hardy tells Holden which questions he wants him to ask Deb if she agreed to a polygraph. And number 4 on the list reads, Did she know who killed her parents? A question that was never asked of Deb's sister. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that Brenda did know who killed her parents. I'm merely pointing out another element of what I see is a consistent pattern of this investigation. It was suspect-driven from the very beginning, and Deb Perringer was always the only suspect. Speaking of suspects... Next, I want to talk for just a minute about Emilio Villagomez Gutierrez. Emilio was the man that was pulled over on Stadium Drive on the day before the murders. The officer that pulled him over thought that he was a spitting image of the composite sketch created by Dr. Abelos' description of the man in the backyard of the Courtney's. Now, what's been said repeatedly is that the man was interviewed and that he had an alibi, and therefore he was cleared. But when you really look into the case file, there's actually no indication whatsoever that the man was ever alibied. Not in the official report, and not in the notes. And there is one discrepancy between the handwritten notes and the official report. In the report, it states that Detective Hardy went to interview Emilio on November 3rd, or at least he definitely gives that impression, just a day after the murders. 
right after the officer who pulled him over informed the detective that the man fit the description. But in the handwritten notes, we find out that the trip was actually made on December 4th, a month later. You can see in the notes that Hardy originally wrote 11-4-2001, then he scratched out the 11 and replaced it with a 12. So you might think that there is some question as to which date the interview actually took place, but when you read the notes, you'll see that they are written in sequence. The entry right before the note about Emilio is dated earlier in the day on December 4th, and the next entry is dated on December 6th. So without question, Emilio wasn't interviewed until December, over a month after the murders. This is what the note about Emilio says. Quote, Went to 3644 Travis. Met with Emilio Villagomez Gutierrez. Hispanic male. Work. Nash Manufacturing Incorporated. Then it says, Hugo Alberto Villagomez Garcia. Hispanic male. Work. Mimi's. Hugo and Emilio drive car. Emilio got tickets but lost them when he washed pants. Photographed Emilio, Hugo, and vehicle. End quote. That's it. There is no indication in these notes anywhere that Emilio was ever even asked about his alibi. We also know that none of the witnesses, specifically Dr. Avalos, was ever shown the photo that was taken of him. Which is pretty sad when you consider the fact that earlier in these notes, it states that Dr. Avalos told investigators that she is, quote, certain that she could identify the man. This is what Hardy's official report says about Emilio. It was on November 3rd that Officer LeBlanc informed Hardy about the traffic stop and the man matching the description. The report says that when LeBlanc pulled Emilio over, Emilio did not have any ID. He told LeBlanc that his name was Emilio Villagomez and that he lived at 2344 Hempel Street. Then Hardy writes, quote, Detective Hardy was later able to find the owner of the vehicle that Officer LeBlanc stopped. Detective Hardy met with Emilio Villagomez Gutierrez, Hispanic male, at his residence at 3644 Travis Avenue. Now, did any of you notice the difference there? Emilio told LeBlanc that he lived on Hempel Street, but Hardy found him, quote, at his residence on Travis Avenue. And then he goes on to write, Emilio did state that he did receive citations from Officer LeBlanc. Detective Hardy did obtain a photograph of Emilio and his vehicle. And that's it. Nothing in the report about his place of work, no mention of Hugo, no checking of his alibi, nothing. Just took a picture and left. Now we get a little bit clearer picture of what happened with Emilio in an email that I found in the file from a crime analyst written to Hardy on November 5th. It reads, quote, I am still checking on that Emilio guy. Let me get this right. The officer said he gave Emilio a ticket on 11-1 around Stadium and Bill Glade while the guy was in a gray 1991 Lincoln. He gave the name Emilio Gomez, but signed the ticket Villa Gomez. Did you happen to get the officer's name or ID who gave the ticket? End quote. So Emilio gave LeBlanc the wrong address, told him his last name was Gomez, but signed the ticket Villa Gomez, then we later find out that his actual last name is Gutierrez. But none of that is in the report. And it seems clear to me that Hardy is trying to make it look as though he jumped right on this lead. His reporting here is completely inconsistent with the rest of the report. In every instance but this one, Hardy documents when he receives a lead or made contact with someone, and then makes a separate entry chronologically when he follows up. For example, we have a note where he went to Target. The person he spoke with said he needs to speak with a security person. 
Then later, there's another note where he calls that person and schedules an appointment. Then another entry when he actually goes to meet with the security person. That's how the report is written, and that's how they're supposed to be written. But in this case, Hardy notes the report from LeBlanc on November 3rd, and then in that same date space on the report, he writes, quote, Detective Hardy was later able to find the owner, leaving out the fact that it was over a month later when that occurred. And that was the only investigation or effort made to identify the man in the backyard. A month after an officer identified him as matching the description of the man, right down to the blue coveralls. A quick visit, a couple photos, and that's it. The last thing that I want to touch on regarding the notes is the sequence of the DNA being tested. In the official report, we have the few entries that I've already discussed in detail. Carla's beginning the testing, she's resuming the testing, she's beginning the testing again, and then she sends the evidence to Gene Screen. But there's more detail in the handwritten notes. I don't know how relevant the information is, but this is the actual sequence of events beginning with January 23rd, when the report reads that Carla is going to begin testing again. On the 23rd, Hardy left a message for Carla. On February 5th, Hardy called the lab and spoke to Carla's supervisor, who informed him that Carla was in the hospital. The supervisor states that if she's not back soon, he's going to turn the case over to another analyst. On February 11th, Hardy speaks with Carla, and she says she's going to begin testing samples again. Then on the 18th, Hardy leaves another message for Carla. Then on the 19th, he learns that she's in the hospital again. Then on the 21st, Hardy leaves a message for the supervisor. And then we have an entry on February 25th that unfortunately isn't entirely legible. It reads, quote, Carla stated she cannot... And then there's a word that I can't read. It looks like it may be a J-U-E, but I can't make sense of it. So please have a look on the website and tell me what you think. It's on page 46 of note number 5. But continuing on, Carla stated that she cannot something DNA at this time. Reviewed evidence. And then here, something was written and then scratched out. So now it reads, reviewed evidence and talked about sending evidence to Gene Screen for DNA testing. Carla will talk to John Vasquez, and that's her supervisor. Really, this just adds more confusion to an already confusing situation. She says repeatedly that she has been doing testing, which requires reports that we don't have. And then Carla is in and out of the hospital, and then turns the DNA over to a private lab to test. What we don't have is any indication that Hardy ever received some exculpatory results, or any results at all for that matter. What we need are the reports so we can move past this. Hopefully, I'll be able to get a hold of them next week when I visit Fort Worth and finally put an end to the crime lab discussion. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The most critical missing piece to our puzzle at this point is timeline. It's of critical importance in this case and in any case to know when the crime was committed and where any potential suspects were during that time frame. We've come a very long way since the beginning of this season as far as narrowing down the window of opportunity for the murders. We began with the state's theory that Agnes walked in on Lloyd's attack and was immediately attacked herself. We know at this point that that's just simply not true. We know that Agnes had a 9 a.m. chiropractor appointment. Her doctor, his wife, and Barbara Parks all say that after the appointment, at around 10 a.m., she walked over to the produce market. According to Patrick Gass's interview on the TV show Snapped, the receipt from the market says that Agnes checked out of the market at 11.20. Since the murders occurred just three days after the time change, added to the witness statements that Agnes left the market at around 10.20, I think that we can be reasonably sure that the clock hadn't been updated and Agnes did leave Parks Produce at around that time. Given time to walk to her car and drive home, that puts her home at around 10.45 to 10.50-ish. We can also be reasonably certain that Agnes did not walk into a murder scene. She had time to come in, put her groceries down, have some interactions with Deb, since we know that Deb was at the house that morning, and then go to the back bedroom, take off her shoes and glasses, pull the bedspread back, get a pillow out from the closet, and lay down and go to sleep. Given all of that information, I'm more than comfortable saying that the attacks did not begin any time before 11 a.m. at the very earliest. And after finally watching the episode of Snap this week, I can say that Patrick Gass agrees with me, albeit for different reasons. He says in his interview that the Courtney's were killed at around noon, although no one from the state ever made that claim at trial. Most likely because they knew there were multiple witnesses who testified that for sure... Deb was long gone before noon. So, we have ourselves a window of opportunity now. The attacks couldn't have began before 11 a.m., and Lloyd would have had to leave for work no later than 1.45, probably sooner, and my amateur opinion on the lividity evidence suggests that Agnes likely died around 1. And on that note, Dr. Ambers is currently helping to make a connection with a very well-known forensic pathologist, who we will hopefully hear from soon to discuss the lividity. But anyway, I'm comfortable saying that the attacks began sometime between 11 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. I think it would take close to an hour to carry out the murders, clean up, pin the note, and exit the house. But to err on the side of caution, let's say it could be done in 30 minutes. That means that at the very earliest the killer could have left the scene would have been 11.30 a.m. And that's being extremely gracious. For that to be true, the attack would have had to have began within 10 minutes of Agnes arriving home, and the killer would have had to kill both the Courtney's and clean up and exit all within 30 minutes. If you ask me to guess, I would say the killer didn't exit the house anytime before 12.30, probably later. But just working off what we know, let's use 11.30 a.m. So, then we look at alibi. Deb writes in her handwritten itinerary that she was at CeCe's Pizza eating lunch at 11 a.m. If that's true, then she would be cleared as a suspect, no question about it. On the day of her arrest, Hardy for the first time asked her where she was at on the day of the murders, and she says she left the house, went to 7-Eleven, and again she says she went to CeCe's. Now, I'm not going to beat a dead horse here. 
You all know my feelings on the possibility that Hardy didn't go to CC's to verify the alibi. But what I want to do is follow up on what I've been seeing over and over again in this case. And that's Hardy being so focused on Deb as a suspect that he ignored and didn't document any exculpatory evidence. No trip to CC's, no trip to 7-Eleven, no follow-up with his contact at the second Target store, etc. Unfortunately, until I get boots on the ground in Fort Worth, I have no way of finding out if Hardy ever did check out Deb's alibi. But there's one element of his report that can be fact-checked. My alarm bells were immediately going off when I read in Hardy's report that no one could be identified by the surveillance video from the first Target store. That just seemed impossible to me. Target was thriving in the early 2000s. It didn't make any sense to me that they would invest the money into a security system that was incapable of identifying people inside the store. If that was the case, then what's the point? Well, after I brought this up on the show, the emails started flooding in. Former Target employees, people who worked in security at banks, all kinds of people were writing in to tell me that my suspicions were correct. That in 2001, Target was known throughout the security world as having superior video surveillance systems. One of those listeners was a woman who was very active on our Facebook fan page. Her name is Julie Hahn. I gave her a call this week so that she could give us some insight into the cameras at Target. Can you explain to me, Julie, you... so? You had mentioned on the fan page that you, back in, did you say 2001 or 2002, you worked at Target? Yeah, I started working for Target uh, somewhere around August or September of 2002. I worked there for a little under two years as a, what's called, Target Protection Specialist. Basically, if you've walked in a Target and you see the security guard-looking person that stands at the door and says, hi... That's me. (laughs) Okay. But we were also in charge of, if we were the one opening, we would go and set up all the cameras, set up all the videotape. So I did have quite a bit of experience with the surveillance system at Target around that time. Okay. And what do you know about it? And and just remind everybody, you know, the the question that's, that's arisen is the fact that Detective Hardy said that that when he reviewed the video at Target, that the quality was so low that they couldn't identify anyone. And and you seem to think that's likely not the case. Yeah, it really struck me when he said it, because the store that I worked for was scheduled to be torn down in early 2003. So all of our equipment was old. None of it was being updated because they were going to build a new store. And the camera equipment we had was pretty good, to tell you the truth. We would use it for prosecutions, so you could certainly zoom in and see people. But when the cameras were just set sort of to their starting position and nobody's manning it and zooming in or following anyone, the quality was still pretty decent. Depending on the angle, you may not see everybody's face, and that's to be expected. But it sounded like they knew what Deborah was wearing. They knew her build. She wasn't, you know, average guy of average height and average size. So it seemed to me very strange that they would say definitively we can't identify anyone rather than we didn't see anyone matching her description. Right. And, you know, that's been 
it, it's been consistent. So you you had commented about that, and I asked you if you could hop on a call with me. And then since then, between then and now that we've talked, I've had multiple emails and multiple other Target employees. And I even had somebody write in that worked for a bank in 2001 in security. And they said that the banks were were almost envious of the Target security system because for some reason of all the box stores and everything out there, Target evidently was known to have some of the highest quality cameras and best security systems. And then we had another listener write in that worked in 2001 for Target security. And he, he said that they could zoom into someone's purse and see you know if they had taken something and put in their purse with those systems. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- those cameras were great. I enjoyed playing with them. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but that wasn't the main thing I was there to do when I was working. But absolutely, I mean, they were they were very good quality cameras. You could see anything you needed to see in them. I was trying to think about the fact that she was probably not suspicious in the store, so nobody was following her, zooming in on her. But even at their base positions, those cameras gave you a, a pretty clear picture of everything. Right. Now, so I didn't realize that they had people in there that could move the cameras around during operations. So are all the cameras like that, or are there some cameras that are just stationary? In the store I worked in, some were stationary, some were movable. So it depended on where you were looking. But again, it wasn't something you could do after the fact, of course. It was that would only happen if you were watching someone who was in the store. Right. Now, were there typically cameras? I know they said the cameras outside. They didn't keep them that long. Uh, But my understanding was they were looking at cameras inside that were at the doors. Were, Were there typically always cameras going like at the doors to catch people coming and going? that were not being moved? Yeah, there were cameras at the doors. Those did not move. And there were cameras throughout the store. And all of them ran all day. At that point, everything was VHS. So you had to go in at certain times of the day and change the tapes out. And we stored stored them for a while. I was trying to think. I'm not 100% sure, but I really want to say we stored those for at least 30 days. That sounds about right. Without going back to the report and looking, I think they had said something along the lines of the ones in the parking lot, they only stored for like 14 days or something, but they were still within the window where they had they had access to the tapes from inside. Right. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, sure, certainly there will be still naysayers out there, but from my perspective, you know, just trying to be objective, I just want to gather as much information as possible because, you know, as I said, the first thing that jumped out to me was that just seems impossible that a security system at a big box store franchise like that wouldn't be able to identify anyone. And like I said, we've had multiple other, I've, I've, I've not had any listeners or anyone write in that worked at Target that said, oh no, we had terrible cameras. Everyone so far has said that the cameras were great. You had, you could see very well, you absolutely could identify people. And then again, I even had someone call from who worked at a bank who they would reference target system because they had such high quality cameras. And so with you calling in and, and, and confirming, I think that that gives us reason to continue down the path to, to keep looking into that target surveillance and see if we can maybe get a hold of the manager or the, the surveillance specialist that Hardy spoke to and see what really went on with those cameras. I think that would be a great idea. Unless someone can show me some credible evidence to the contrary... I am now convinced that Hardy could most definitely identify people in that video. 
And so I ask again, why did Hardy say that the video quality made the cameras useless when they clearly were not? And why then did he not collect a copy of the tapes? For now, I'm going to let this go and move on. But I will be investigating further on my trip to Texas next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The last thing that we're going to discuss today is the note. Or more specifically, the Courtney's computer. It's been noted and is uncontested that Deborah did not own a computer. So if we're looking at her as the culprit, she could not have typed and printed the note stuck to Lloyd's leg at her house. Theoretically, she would have had to type it out and print it at the crime scene, which is what the state presented as their theory. But that theory has some pretty major issues. I posted on our website the actual computer forensic report as well as the analyst who examined the computer's testimony. The analyst's name is Troy Lawrence. So I'll start right off the bat with the big question. Can it be proven that the note was printed on the Courtney's computer? The answer is no. Lawrence was asked this question during his testimony, and there was no question. All we can do is speculate. But he does present some data that could be useful to us. The first thing that Lawrence does is verify the time on the computer. He compares it to an atomic clock and determines that the clock on the computer was accurate to within a few seconds. Knowing that, he begins to explain what he was able to determine through his examination. He found that the computer was in fact accessed on the morning of the murders. At 9.57 a.m., someone created a Word document, and at 10.01 a.m., the document was printed. He explains that the document wasn't saved, and therefore it cannot be recovered. Evidently, when you send a document to a printer, the file is saved into a temporary storage. That temporary storage can be accessed until the computer is shut down. He goes on to explain that at 11.19 a.m., the computer was manually shut down. He says that means someone clicked the start button and then clicked shut down. During that process, the computer cleans out all of the temporary storage, never to be accessed again. Then, sometime after the shutdown, the computer was pulled off the desk and unplugged. Lawrence wrote in his report that had the computer just been unplugged, the file would still be accessible. But since it was put through the shutdown process sometime prior to being unplugged, the data is lost. So let's break this down. A document was created at 9.57 a.m. and printed four minutes later at 10.01 a.m. At 10 a.m., Agnes was still at the produce market. So if this document was Deb printing the leg note, that would mean that she's at the house with Lloyd, goes into his bedroom and types up the note and prints it out, a solid 45 minutes before Agnes even gets home. 
For that to be true, I think we would have to rule out the whole crime of passion scenario. It's hard to contend that Deb snapped due to some argument when she had written a note intended to be a forensic countermeasure an hour before she snapped. So there's problem number one. Deb didn't type the note at home, and if she typed it at the Courtney's house, she did so while Lloyd was home over an hour before the murders. And then here's problem number two. The computer was ripped off the desk, causing it to become unplugged during or after the attack. But before that, it was properly shut down at 11.19 a.m., an hour and 18 minutes after the note was printed. Now let's look at that 11.19 time. Why 11.19? Well, the computer is located in the bedroom where Agnes was napping. We know that Agnes couldn't have arrived home until at least 10.50. Deb says that when her mom got home, they chatted for a short time, she got the receipts for the trees and the concert tickets, and she left. Whether Deb actually left or not, of course, is still up for debate. But either way, it seems reasonable to me that 11.19 was probably about the time that Agnes went to the back bedroom to take her nap. And if any of you owned a Windows computer back in 2001, you know that after several minutes of idle time, a screensaver would appear. It makes perfect sense to me that Agnes would shut down the computer when she lay down so that the room would be dark. And that scenario certainly makes more sense than her killer going through the process of shutting the computer down over an hour after they typed the note and then ripping it off the desk. One thing that I think we can be sure of at this point is that the Courtney's were alive and well at 11.19 a.m. Whoever the killer is, I cannot imagine any scenario where that person would perform a proper shutdown of the computer. And not for nothing, but that 11.19 time frame fits perfectly with all of the other evidence that we've uncovered concerning the window of opportunity. So let's imagine for a minute that the attacks began at the moment the computer was turned off. Which, if I'm being honest, I do not believe was the case. But let's just say everything goes haywire at 11.20. How much time would that leave Deborah to commit the murders and leave the house? Mabel Zabo is certain that Deb was gone when she arrived home at noon. Joe Zabo was working in the garage all morning and also said that Deb was gone well before noon. He can't remember exactly when she left, but says that he knows she was absolutely gone before 12. At this point, it's getting more and more difficult to conjure up a scenario where Deb was even in the neighborhood at the time of the murders. And this is precisely why my opinion on this case has shifted from Deb's probably guilty to I think that there's a good chance she's not. As I've said many times before, when you put a microscope on the state's case, what should happen is that it gets stronger. Little nuggets of evidence keep pointing back to the convicted. That's how it's supposed to work when they got the right person. But in this case, the closer we look, the more problems we find. Let me give you another example of attention to detail causing the state's case to crumble even more. Listener Janaea Laws is a graphic designer. She noticed something that I believe everyone else missed. So we have plenty of clear photos of the note on Lloyd's leg. Well, Janaea also noticed that there are several printed documents on the dresser in one of the bedrooms. Being a graphic designer, she noticed a discrepancy right away. All of the documents printed out on the dresser were typed using what she calls an old-fashioned serif font, a font that has little feet on the letters. And these are definitely documents printed by the Courtney's. One that Janaea screenshot is a note written by Agnes to someone named Danny explaining how many concert tickets that she sold. 
But the note on Lloyd's leg is printed in a more modern sans serif font, which doesn't have what she describes as those little feet on the ends of the letters. So now what kind of mental gymnastics do we have to go through in order to theorize that Deb printed the note on the Courtney's computer? The papers on the dresser all have the consistent font, meaning that in all likelihood, the old serif font is the default setting on the Courtney's computer. So in order for Deb to have printed the note at her parents' house, and remember, she doesn't have a computer at home, she would have had to sit down in Agnes and Lloyd's bedroom with Lloyd home and type the note an hour before Agnes arrived home from the market. Four minutes passed from the time the document was created until the time it was printed. In those four minutes, Deb would have changed the font for some reason into a font that is close but not quite the same as the default and then typed out the note and printed it put it in her pocket, and then hang out for another at least hour and 20 minutes until her mom lay down for a nap, then kill her parents, clean herself up, put the note on Lloyd, walk out the garage door, out to her car that was parked on the street right in front of Joe Zabo, who was working in his garage across the street, close the garage door, and drove away without anyone ever seeing her car there any time after 10.30. Is it possible that that's what actually happened? Sure. It's possible. But is it likely that that's what happened? In my opinion, absolutely not. One thing, though, has become abundantly clear through the examination of the computer forensics. Finding out if Deb was actually at CeCe's Pizza at 11 a.m. is now more important than ever. For now, I'm going to let this alibi discussion rest. We need more information, and I'm headed to Texas to try and get it. Until then, we need to keep on moving through the rest of our investigation. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. 
Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.